0: So, yesterday, um, Padma Vajra uh, read out a description of Tapa Nagpo, or Rudra, um, including things like having three heads and grotesque aspects like having rubbing red semen on his cheeks. And, I mean, it, it was definitely, my response was definitely, well, that's not an attractive image, but <laughs> it, it, um, I guess I didn't know what to do with it. And then later on, he named a different demon. He said, the demon of mediocrity, and I just had shivers down my spine. That, that, was, more, that was more scary. And uh, I think it's because I'm scared of the demon of mediocrity um, that I'm interested in the guru principle. I'm interested in you know, what, what the guru principle is and then how it manifests in, in my life and in, in our, in our sangha. So I wanted to um, recap a bit of what Bhante said in the the Padmasamha 1979 talk, and share some personal reflections of how that how that plays out in my life. So in in that talk, he places, uh, he places the Guru in this um, uh, set of four: the, the Manu, Buddha, Guru, Terton. Um, Padma Bas has covered the Terton, so I not uh, I don't need to talk about that. But he starts off with the manu. Um, the manu, uh, you know, lays the, the foundation. Uh, describes him as the as the law giver. Uh, creates the foundation for um, people to be able to hear the Dharma and grow from it. And uh, then the 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 Buddha comes along, and the the Buddha has an intellectual approach, or has an gives an intellectual teaching, a, a, a general teaching of the Dharma. Um, uh, a clear teaching, and Bante says he does this because the intellect is the, the growth point of humanity. When I read that, I thought, oh, what does that mean? And then I, then I reflected on my own experience, and definitely when I was coming along uh, first to, to a Buddhist centre, it was definitely the intellect that, that was being engaged in, in the beginning. It was, that, was the, that was the starting point. And, of course, this is represented in the, um, in the story of Pamar. Padmasambhava by Shantarakshita, the the Bodhisattva abbot who is very well-learned, a scholar. Uh, He comes along to Tibet and and, and gives a a clear intellectual presentation of the Dharma. Um, But it doesn't quite work. And in Bhante's words, it's not enough to scratch the rational surface of the mind, of our minds. Uh, And that's definitely true of me. And then uh, after the Buddha comes along the guru. And as we've already heard, um, the Guru doesn't add anything. He doesn't, he doesn't bring a new set of, uh, sort of better teachings. Um, but he takes the general and and, and makes it specific. Uh, he takes the well he, he takes what's rational and um, speaks to, to the non rational or in, in, in Bhante's words, the irrational, non-rational, even supra-rational. And the, uh, a point that um, Bhante draws out in an earlier talk from 1972 on Padmasambhava is that in engaging with the, the non-rational, the supra-rational, um, the, the guru, Padmasambhava, is not antagonistic um, you know, against the, the rational. He draws out the point that... Uh, Shantarakshita, the, the Bodhisattva abbot, and Padmasambhava end up working together uh, to build the monastery. They're both, they're both doing the work, and both, both, both were needed. So the guru uh, is, is working on a, a transformation uh, of the depths, and I guess you know in the way that we've been talking about that, and we heard talks and interviews yesterday, is of uh, subduing demons, uh, working with the, the deeper forces uh, within us, and to just to, to requote, you know, th- th- these forces need to be integrated so that our spiritual life isn't just some pale, anemic thing, but glowing and throbbing with the energy of the demons that have been tamed and transformed. I mean, that's definitely uh, uh, what I would like uh, my my spiritual life to look like. And uh, Bante. Um, Sort of, a, he very very strongly says that the job is not to cut off or disown, um, not to cut off parts of us or disown parts of us uh, that are uncomfortable or unwelcome, either unwelcome to us or unwelcome to others. So it's this this um, in, in engaging with those bits that we might be inclined to cut off, and a really um, well, what felt really important to me uh, was he drew out this point in the 1972 talk that this is not just for ourselves, it's not just for our own uh, practice. Uh, it's, for, it's, it's of utmost importance for our movement. In fact, he says, One must respond with one's whole being. Only when a sufficient number of people can do this shall we have a genuine, authentic spiritual movement in this country. That was back in 1972, which was just four years after the founding of the Order. And uh, I think, you know, I, I, I'm confident that we do have an uh, authentic spiritual movement in this country, and of course not just in this country. Um, but the task of, of not cutting off and not disowning those, those forces within us um, is necessary to keep that, to keep that alive, uh, to, keep, to keep a genuine, authentic spiritual movement so it's on to my own uh, my own life well in terms of cutting off and disowning um, I kind of I think I'm probably a bit of a a good case study in that I'm sure all of us have a have things that we cut off or disown but um, in the conditions of of being growing up gay in a time and place where that was uh, completely unacceptable uh, it gave me a bit of a masterclass in cutting off and disowning. In a way, it kind of felt like my life depended on it. Um, and it wasn't just a, a subconscious thing that went on under the surface. It was definitely a, oh, that thought's arise, cut off. Um, so I became, I became very good at cutting off and disowning. One, one positive consequence is that I've got a, a very good poker face. Um, <laughs> there can be all sorts going on, da- on <laughs> down here, and I can just sort of keep calm on top. Um, uh, but it's definitely not a—it's uh, not a, a tendency or a habit that's, that served me very well uh, in my adult life. I, do, I remember one of—I guess in a way—one of my first uh, spiritual friends. Although this was before I came across the Dharma, so I definitely didn't think think of her like that. Um, but she could see she was she was definitely more aware than I was, and she could see. Um, that I wasn't particularly in contact with my feelings and emotions. And when I was, you know, I'd be going through a bit of a rough time and she'd say, she'd ask me really complicated questions like, so what are you feeling? <laughs> and I'd, I'd be utterly perplexed. I'd just sort of look at her blankly, like she'd ask me one of those absurd sort of questions like what does consciousness taste like, you know? I, I just didn't I, didn't, I didn't know, I, I didn't, it's not that I didn't know the answer. I didn't even know what the question meant. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for her for, for persisting uh, uh, because I certainly wasn't a very... Um, well, it was a very persistent, stubborn habit uh, or um, tendency in me. And then this uh, this whole idea of demons, or as uh, Savadra talked about them, um, Maras, I find this, this whole concept of... Um, Naming and then seeing and then in a way objectifying and as a result uh, disempowering. It's a really um, well, a really powerful, powerful tool. Um, there's plenty of demons that can arise even just in the process of giving a talk. Uh, right from the moment when someone says, hey, would you like to give a talk on the order weekend? Uh, all the way up to standing uh, in front of the lectern. Uh, I've, I've, I've definitely got good at ignoring the demons that arise when the question is posed. Uh, I just sort of think I'm not going to listen to that. I'll, this person has asked me to, do, to, you know, to, to give a talk. I'll trust their judgment and I'll say yes. Um, but of course, over the months, uh, they keep popping up. It was only, on, I think, on Tuesday morning, I thought, yeah, really, I'm going to sit down and I'll, I'll think about what I, really, what I really want to say. And this very clear voice popped up in my head and said you have absolutely nothing worth saying to that group of people and uh, I was really grateful that I had the tools to uh, well not let that um, not let the pancha sort of take that and build it up into uh, into something bigger Um, I just thought oh well that's a that's a very interesting demon there and um, took it upon myself to to text a friend, just to sort of, I guess, in a way, naming it, objectifying it to, to someone else. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, when giving a talk, there's the demon of nervousness. Um, I remember uh, about, about a year and a half ago, I uh, was a very, very similar arrangement to this. I was on a, a, a double bill with Padma Vasa, um, giving a talk in this shrine rooms, uh, you know, set up in a very similar way. And while sitting there listening to Padma Bassa talk before me, uh, an awful lot of nervousness arose. And I was about to give a talk on, on Padma Sambhava and on energy, and I thought, okay, I probably need to do what I'm about to, about to say. So I sat there, I conjured up Padma Sambhava in my mind uh, while Padma Bassa was talking, sorry. Um, and I just really went into it and, and, and felt, uh, felt that. Well, unpleasant, nervous, nervous energy, and it was one of it was one of the experiences where it absolutely really worked. Because by the time, despite being really nervous, by the time I stood up uh, in front of uh, the lectern, I just felt energized, Ener- energized and focused. And uh, um, well, it was at least it was at one example that I know that it's possible to take a to take a demon like that and turn it turn it into a god. And then thinking about how, um, how the, the guru principle manifests for us in, 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 our, in our sangha. Well, quite early on, um, it was clear that the, you know, the, idea, the idea of a guru was, was important to, to Bhante. And he was thinking about it a lot. And he gave a talk called, uh, Is a Guru Necessary? And in that talk, he um, lists off a number of things that the guru isn't. Guarding against uh, misunderstandings of of the guru, and he end up he does end up concluding that um, well growth it's not impossible but is incredibly difficult without contact with someone who is more developed than us, and not just contact with someone who's more developed than us, but uh, receptivity uh, to them or, or or faith in them, and so of course. You know that's that's in a way one of the main ways that the guru principle plays out for us. We have we have a sangha, uh, we have uh, spiritual friendship, and this um, the idea of of vertical spiritual friendship. We have our preceptor, we have, we have kalyanamitras. So we have contact um, with those who are more advanced than us, and that uh, that's incredibly important. But it doesn't well it 's not all it might do, but I think there's there's an aspect um, that, that's necessary that one might associate with a guru in the traditional sense, and that is in terms of what drives us um, there's this idea that I quite like of of spiritual laziness. Um, I definitely don't think I suffer too much from laziness uh, but i but I am confident that spiritual laziness is a is a is a force that needs to be needs to be tackled. You know, Bante—I can't remember where—but you know, Bante talks about the person who goes around being busy uh, and saying that they're that they're busy uh, as being a, a you know classic uh, example of of spiritual laziness. And you know, it, traditionally, a guru might be the one that, um, uh, that 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 provides a certain drive. You know, if you think about uh, Marpa and Mila Ripa, you know, he told him to and then re- rebuild and, and, and rebuild. And he just, because of this complete sort of um, faith and obeisance to his guru, just did that. Um, but we may, we may not have the same, that same kind of relationship. Um, you know, our preceptors might, might provide a bit, of a, you know, a bit of a push. I definitely remember when I asked my preceptor, uh, well, to, if he would be my preceptor, and he asked me why I asked uh, one of the reasons I gave was that uh, I thought that if I needed it, he'd give me a spiritual kick up the bum, <laughs> and uh, he sort of nodded as if to say, "Yes, I will." <laughs> uh, um, but definitely, I, I, I want—I guess—I want to know that um, that I—I I don't know—that there is a there is a drive, and that I'm not that I want to put the conditions in place uh, for me not. To, to, I want to put the c- conditions in place so that I'm sort of prevented from being spiritually lazy. And an interesting teaching um, that Bhante gave in 1993 in the Wind Horse Trading Seminar. So in that seminar, the, it was the management team of um, Wind Horse Trading uh, asking, sort of asking the question of whether the, the conditions that they were in um, were sort of preliminary conditions and that they, should they then go on to sort of live in a meditative ahara to do the real work. Or, to put it more more sort of succinctly, were they conditions for the realization of insight and uh, in in that in that seminar, bante uh, well he talks about three three sorts of drives that are that are needed in the meditative situation, and I guess um, you know the, the meditative situation is a situation where maybe there isn't much to do except except meditate so you don't have a you don't have that necessarily external uh, situation driving you, and the three drives he said are um, serious personal problems. So I guess some form of some form of personal dukkha that you are driven to overcome, um, that you then you have a motivation to meditate on to, to encounter, or being someone for whom uh, philosophical uh, problems are, are real genuine problems that you just can't put down. Or having a demanding master uh, who's going to—I guess you know—sort of thinking of the the Zen master who's going to hit you over the the shoulders with a stick uh, if you're if you're not um, meditating focused enough. Uh, And I guess you know it's it's quite possible for these three drives not to not to not to be there. Um, You know, many of us come along to the Dharma with some sort of uh, acute personal difficulties and problems that we are motivated to to overcome. Um, but often these can, can quieten down uh, after, after a number of years. Um, I imagine that, that for many of us, uh, philosophical problems aren't necessarily a, um, a driving force. I mean, I am interested in what the nature of consciousness is, and if anyone knows, I'll give you my ear. Uh, I'd be interested to hear. But it's not quite enough for me to spring out of bed in the morning and get on the cushion and, and, and you know focus in. And of course, uh, most of us don't have a demanding master um, uh, to, to, to sort of proverbially hit us with a stick. So what Bante says is that we need to, um, we need to be pushed to the edge. Um, we, need to be, we need to be in situations where we come up against our limits. Uh, we come up against ourselves. Um, situations where... Um, there is challenge and difficulty and the, the adamic perspective when a dharmic perspective is brought in um, that can give rise to to insight and then there's a uh, well uh, as um as Maitripaya mentioned uh, a big aspect of my well current and the last few years my my, my practice has been taking on uh, taking on responsibility and when I say taking on responsibility, I'm definitely meaning, well, not, not it's responsibility for other, not oneself. Of course, practicing the dharma definitely means taking on responsibility for yourself and your actions and uh, your own agency. But there's um, when one takes on responsibility that involves other, it, uh, it turns up the volume uh, on, one's, on one's practice. And of course, there's all sorts of different ways of, um, of taking on responsibility. Um, there's one way which is just friendship. Uh, you know, you you befriend someone, you create a connection, and then, you know, whether it's um, uh, you know whether it's been made conscious or made made um, uh, you know it's it's spoken of, There's a sort of certain responsibility to to, to that person. Uh, you know. Uh, if a friend comes and they're in, they're in need of of, of um, company or someone to talk to. There's a resp- you know, there's a responsibility to, re- to respond. Um, you could take on responsibility, of course, by teaching in a centre. Um, you sign up to do a to do a course. You then got a responsibility to turn up, you know, each evening for, for six weeks to, to be in a in a good mental state, to have done the preparation. Um, there's a responsibility of giving talks. Uh, definitely, definitely. I felt this weekend like I've had a, uh, I've had a certain responsibility, and that's 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 uh, coloured my experience for the whole weekend. Because it's in a way, it's um, sharpened my meditation practice. Because I felt okay, on Sunday morning, I need to be in a in a decent enough mental state that I can uh, at least at least give this talk. So all of a sudden, each each meditation session. Um, Felt, felt really important and it's a it's almost it's, it's almost like that responsibility is a is a more powerful um, motivation than the the more simple responsibility for myself which I can sort of choose to put to the side um, if i'm feeling not not so motivated and then there's the 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 responsibility of um, of taking on particular roles um, i've uh, you know, I since I came to, Well, before I came to Adisana, my, my life actually was the complete reverse of, of what it is now. I'd I'd quit my job, uh, so I didn't I didn't have a job, I didn't have anywhere that I lived, I didn't have a I didn't have a partner. I didn't. I mean, there was nothing tying me down. Um, it was wonderful. Uh, I really <laughs> really really enjoyed it and didn't want to give it up for anything. And uh, Anyway, I ended up asking after the Dharma Life course to stay on at Adistana for six months, which was the absolute maximum I could imagine uh, committing myself to at that point. And one thing led to another. uh, And uh, now I'm chair. (laughs) Um, But uh, again, it's a... It's it's this... In in a way, it's um, a practice of not... Not shying away from demons, demons that might want me to, might make me want to say no when the question arises, um, and and also even you know, that, that 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 demon of mediocrity, um, and it's it's been really fascinating to me actually what effect um, the taking on responsibility has had. I had quite a bit of time to think about the question of whether I wanted to be chair and one whether well, it, it, after. After some time, I concluded, "Okay, I can do this," but the main question I had is, it going to be beneficial to my practice?" And I sat with that question for a long time because I really I wasn't I wasn't sure. Um, and it's been it's been really fascinating to sort of to see the effect. And I had it was a about a week or two after after we had the ritual, um, Sabuti led a ritual where I took on the the role from sadhanandi, I was at my squin um, doing a doing a retreat, and my meditation completely took off in a way that I just haven 't experienced before you know for the first nine ten years of my of my uh, practice of meditation it 's been fairly work a day working on mental states, trying to get a bit calmer um, yeah just trying to try to make the the sort of the Colour of my mind slightly more positive, and then something something opened up. I can't find any on the rational surface of my mind. I can't find any link uh, between that and me taking on the responsibility. But it's too much of a um, it's too much of a coincidence for me not to think that deep down there is a, there is a link. And, you know, as I said before, you know, on a on a on a simpler level, just this weekend. Knowing that I had to to give this talk, and therefore my mental state was important was a was a factor for my meditation being much sharper and when one When one holds a responsibility, one constantly has to dig deeper um, I, I I just find that it sort of in a way doesn't feel like an option, and it feeling like it's not an option is is, is quite a good thing because well. Not always. It's not always sort of a a good, inspired day um, when I might choose the choose the more, the, or the less mediocre option. Um, so just constantly being put in situations where where one has to to dig deeper. Um, you know that might be a meeting meeting with someone who is um, who's newer than me, who I, who I'm who's working you know working with me or I oversee and. They are they are in a bit of a mental state, but maybe I am too, uh, and maybe you know sort of it's all playing out at, from from their side in a in, in the conversation. What's what's difficult? What's wrong? What's you know what's the problem with, with the situation? And um, just just sort of knowing that uh, their their mental state and their um well, their potential to 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 work with that and grow is dependent upon me. Which is quite, it's a little bit of a scary thought, but it, uh, it's just quite helpful to be in that situation. It's just not an option to, to, be, the, to be the smaller one and to have to, um, well, to, have to find a bigger perspective uh, for them. But then in the end, uh, it's beneficial to, to me as well. There was this, dip, this point when, uh, soon after I took on the role of um, manager back in 20, 2019, and i um i definitely you know, as i as a sort of neurotic tendency i'm more of a, i'm an overworker i'll sort of uh push myself to my own detriment um probably for all sorts of reasons, maybe wanting to be useful, wanting to be seen to be uh doing my bit um and you know often to the detriment of my mental states uh, even if i knew because Bhante says so that working on one's mental states is also important. But there was this, this um, particular moment when I was manager when I realised, oh, this is actually my job now, to, to work on my mental states, because my mental states, more than anything, are going to affect uh, the team. Um, if I'm not in a, in, a, in a good mental state, they're going to know it's going to have an effect, and that's more important than me, Responding to another email. Um, and... Yeah, this is just a really, really Im- important moment. It sort of brought, brought two, two separate things together uh, in, into one. And, yes, yeah, so the... An the, aspect of this, this uh, unexpected, and it was unexpected for me, path of taking on more and more responsibility has been... Um, it's not because I've sought it out. Uh, I don't think there's been a, any situation where I've asked for it or I've, um, I've put my hand up. But it's definitely been a conscious choice not to succumb to demons when the question is, uh, a question is posed or I'm asked to do something. Because, of course, whenever I'm asked to do something like that or step up, there's just an immediate thought that says, no, you're not up to that or you're not the right person or uh, that's, not, that's not for you. And I made a conscious choice to to not to to to, to name that as a demon, uh, put it to one side, and um, well, ignore it uh, to a certain extent. All of this could sound a bit heavy. Um, uh, there was mention of that the other day, and I wanted to. I guess I wanted to finish off by um, describing some of the the motivation, uh, the motivation for why. We'll put, re, 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 even for my sake, re-contacting the motivation for why I'd want to put myself in these sort of situations where taking responsibility for mental states is the only option. And uh, I was thinking about this, like, this metaphor of a carrot and a stick, two different, two different types of motivation. I think I'm generally um, predisposed to be more motivated by the stick, uh, which, is, which is something I need to, to, to work on. Um, but of course, there are there are sticks, uh, motivating sticks, in my life. There's um, well, there's the the one I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the the demon of mediocrity. Um, if I if I bring that to mind, then I'm I'm certainly uh, motivated. And there's another one that Bante mentions in his 1972 talk, uh, quoting from um, the Kabbalistic tradition that a repressed God becomes a devil, uh, a repressed God becomes a devil, and that 's another, another idea that sends shivers up my spine uh, that if my choice to ignore uh, or you know, repress a particular demon um, or even or, or a potential god will turn into a, turn into a, a devil uh, in my in my later later years, but with my um, Desire to focus a bit more on the carrot. I wanted to to finish off uh, with a quote. Um, so this is in a this is again from Bante in a talk where he was. It seemed like he was introducing Padmasambhava to the um, to the order movement, and he's describing the various um, imagery, uh, the various symbols uh, of of Padmasambhava. And he gets to a particular point, and he says. And somewhere there should be a skull cup, and strictly speaking it shall be filled with blood, or at least red wine, to represent the bliss you drink when when you experience the voidness and you have renounced everything. That renunciation is bliss, and that bliss is drunk from the bowl of your renunciation. Thank you.